Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Derek O'Reilly, and for over 30 years I've been a licensed London taxi driver. For 20 years, I taught the knowledge to prospective London cab drivers. During this podcast, I'm going to be joined by experts who are going to bring the forgotten and secret history of London to life. Hello, today I'm joined by an old friend and we're going to discuss the theatrical history of London. My name's Diane Burstein and I'm a qualified London Blue Badge tour guide. My website is www.secretlondonwalkingtours.co.uk. So have a look at that to find out about the tours I do. And if you would like to contact me and join my mailing list, it's Diane, D-I-A-N-E, at secretlondonwalkingtours.co.uk. You can also follow me on TikTok, Twitter, and that is at Guide Diane. Well, Diane, lovely to speak to you again. Nice to see you again. Now, the other night I was driving the cab um, along Shaftesbury Avenue and I thought to myself, I wonder how these theatres all started. And then I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I know a lady who'll probably be able to give me some of the answers. So what I'd like to discuss today with you is the history of London's theatres. I've got loads of questions for you. So where did it all begin? Well, I suppose you could say it all began with the Roman Amphitheatre, which the Guildhall Yard, if you go to that in the City of London, you can go to the Guildhall Art Gallery and you can see the archaeological remains of the Roman Amphitheatre, which are under Guildhall Yard. But that wasn't the sort of entertainment that we would necessarily want to see. Well, I hope not. Anyway, it was gladiatorial combat. So very, very different. And when the Romans left, that theatre went... And there was no theatre building up until 1576. So what happened later is you had strolling players, and this was during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, so you would have bands of strolling players who would travel around from town to town and they would set up their cart in the yard of an inn or on a village green and they would perform there. Would people pay to see this? So, yes, there would be somebody who would go round and collect the money in a box. They say that's where the name box office comes from. (laughs) So, yes, you would pay, (laughs) but... um, Eventually, these actors decided they wanted something a little bit more formal. So a group of actors headed up by the Burbage family built a theatre in Shoreditch, 
which they called the theatre. And if you go today to New Inn Yard, you might have seen it. Yes. There is a new statue there of Mr William Shakespeare sitting on a bench near the site where archaeologists have found the remains of I haven't seen it, but I the theatre. I think it appeared during lockdown, so you'd be forgiven oh, okay. for not having All seen right. it. And that theatre was called the theatre because there was no confusion. It was the only one around. But then they started to build others and there was another one that was built called the Curtain, which didn't have curtains, but it was built near the curtain wall of an old priory, hence the name. And these theatres would have looked like the reconstruction of Shakespeare's globe today. So you had people sitting or standing up in the galleries watching the show and those galleries were based on the galleries of the old coaching inns. So if you go down to Southwark to the George Inn, which is London's only remaining galleried coaching Been inn, in there. and you look up at the galleries there, they're very similar to the galleries that you see in the Globe Theatre. So what kind of theatre would have been put on? I mean, would it have been comedy? Would it have been drama? Well, think of Shakespeare. He wrote them all. He wrote comedies. He wrote tragedies. Right. He wrote problem plays. He wrote yeah. all sorts of things. And it would be plays by Shakespeare. And then you had Shakespeare's contemporaries as well, like Christopher Marlowe, for example, because the theatre land moved and it moved over to the area of Southwark on the south side of the river. Why was that? Why did it move? Because, well, the theatre, the landlord put up the rent, and it's the same old story. The actors couldn't afford to pay. So the theatres were mo mostly out of wood. The foundations were wooden. So what did they do? They just did a moonlight flip, we used to call it. They dismantled their theatre at dead of night, and they took it across the river and they rebuilt it in the spring of 1599 and now they gave it a more inventive name. They called it the Globe. But you had another theatre that had been built a little bit earlier in Southwark that was called The Rose. So it went to join The Rose and places like Shoreditch and Southwark were outside of the city jurisdiction and outside of the city walls. And so this is why the theatres went there, because going to the theatre in the past was more like going to a rock concert or a football match would be today. Audiences did not sit there quietly. They'd clap and cheer and stamp their feet if they liked what was going on, but they'd boo and jeer and throw rotten vegetables oh, at right. the actors if they didn't like what was going on, and they would be taking food and drink into the auditorium as well. So quite a precarious thing to be an actor in those days. Um, what I was going to say is we mentioned the Globe and the Rose, so presumably where the Shakespeare's Globe Theatre is today, is that built on the site of the original Globe? Not the exact site, no. Um, one street behind where today's Globe is, Park Street, you will find a plaque that tells you that this is where the original Globe stood. And the reason that they could not build on that original site is there's a terrace of early 19th century houses there that are listed buildings and you've also got the steps leading up to Southwark Bridge. So they got the nearest site that they possibly could, which used to be a depot for the dust carts for the London Borough oh, of Southwark. <laughs> and it's actually in a better position now than if it would have been on the original site because of now, of course, between the original site and the river, you've got tall office blocks. Now, today... 
because the globe is on the riverside, you can see it from the river. And that's a good advertisement yeah, for it. Yeah, lovely. And it would have been the main advertisement for the globe and the other theatres back in Queen Elizabeth I's time because what you would have done is you would have looked across from the city and you would have been able to see the Globe and the Rose and the other theatres, even though it was one street back, because you didn't have high-rise buildings in between the river and where the Globe was. And the flag flying was a sign that there's a play on today. That was the way of advertising. And the plays only happened at two o'clock in the afternoon because they had no lighting when it got darker. And so the flag was flying and that would be the sign come over and see a play. And, of course, the people who ran businesses in the city hated it because some of their apprentices would bunk off work to go, <laughs> go, to and, to go, go and see a play. Brilliant. Exactly, yes. Great yeah, idea. Yeah. So how long did... Because, obviously, um, the area I know as Theatreland is not Southwark. So how long did Southwark maintain its... Well, up until 1642. But then we have the Puritans in government who did not like theatre because as well as the rowdy audiences who are also fighting one another outside in the street. (laughs) So if the Rose and the Globe had plays that finished at the same time, it would be like having Spurs and Arsenal football stadiums across the road from each other. Imagine they would be fighting each other in the street. But also the local prostitutes would be plying their trade in and around the theatres as well. And they mm-hmm. followed Theatreland because they went to Covent Garden where the next Theatreland was and then Shaftesbury Avenue, they went to Soho. So the Puritans didn't like all of this. So they closed down all of the theatres and there was no theatre again till the restoration of King Charles II. How long were they closed for? They were closed from 1642 up until the early 1660s. So Charles II comes to the throne in 1660 and then in 1663 we have our first theatre opening in Covent Garden. What was that called? The Bridges Street Playhouse. Right. Because it was in a street which is now called Catherine Street which is Bridges Street. What's that now called? Theatre Royal Drury Lane. (laughs) Because there have been five theatres on the site and at one time there was an entrance in Drury Lane. So it's very confusing today, actually, for people who don't know London. Theatre Royal Drury Lane, they go to Drury Lane. Well, where's the entrance? It's actually in Catherine Street. So, uh, yeah. So that was the very first one. Um, And then there was another one as well in Lincoln's Inn Fields that was built on the site of an old tennis court. But later that. that relocated And it went to the site where the Royal Opera House is today and that became the Royal Covent Garden Theatre. And both these companies that performed at those two theatres, they had a royal patent because in the days when theatre was not respectable, to gain respectability, the theatre companies had to have patronage of an important person. So you had the Earl of Leicester's men, the Chamberlain's men, the Queen's men, then the King's men when King James I comes to the throne. And so you had the King's men and the Duke's men. And the King's men were at what is now the Theatre Royal Drury Lane and the Duke's men were at Lincoln's Inn Fields and then they get them moving and they move in the 1730s and they go to the site where the Royal Opera House is today. Oh, and they're still quite close to each other. That's right. What was right. the theatre in Lincoln's Inn called? That was the Lincoln's Inn Theatre oh, right, okay. at one I time. Yes, that. yes, there was a theatre there. And there were theatres in other places. For example, if you read Samuel Pepys's diary, he went to a theatre that was just off Fleet Street. And in the 
past. Um, you had theatres, for example, if you know there's a little park called Fortune Park, it just off Golden Lane and there's a Fortune Street. Well, back yeah. in Shakespeare's day, there was a Fortune Theatre that was there. And now we've got the Fortune Theatre, yeah, which, is, Garden, uh, yeah. which yeah. is in Covent Garden. There was the Red Bull Theatre, which was over in the Clerkenwell area that was also uh, back in the 17th century. So what type of performances would be going on at these various theatres? Well, you had Shakespeare, you had the Restoration Dramatists, so people like uh, George Farquhar and then later Congreve, and they wrote these Restoration Comedies, which were forerunners of today's farces in many ways. Uh, They were a little bit risque, so they were being performed. You had plays by writers who still get revived today, like Oliver Goldsmith, She Stoops to Conquer, uh, Richard Brinsley Sheridan writing The Rivals, for example. So these are plays that still get revived today at places like the National Theatre or by the Royal Shakespeare Company. And in the 18th century, censorship came along because it was decided that they did not want people writing plays that were criticising the government of the day or the monarchy. Now, there'd always been a sort of censorship in that back in Shakespeare's day, you had to go and perform scenes of your plays in front of the Master of the Revels, who was based at St John's Gate in Clerkenwell, and he would give you the thumbs up or the thumbs down or say, well, you could do this play, but do you mind toning down the criticism? Remember, we've got Elizabeth I on the throne and Henry VIII was her father. So if you go and see the play Henry VIII by Shakespeare, which is hardly ever performed, he doesn't seem such a bad chap, you know, because right, they couldn't censorship. criticize. Yeah. So censorship was very important. And to really impose censorship, you couldn't allow too many theatres to be putting on the sort of serious plays that might be a little bit critical of the powers that be. And so only the Royal Patent Theatres were allowed to put on serious drama. And there were other theatres, like the Little Theatre in the Hay, which later became the Theatre Royal Haymarket, but they had to put on plays with musical interludes. So you'd get something like... Othello with songs, which now you might get today, actually. A lot of Shakespeare's plays, when they perform them, they put in musical interludes, and Shakespeare did write songs himself, but they would put in lots of music in order to get round the rules. And another way to get round the rules, which a man called Samuel Foote did at the Little Theatre in the Hay, is that you would send out a private invitation and you would say to people, oh, come to my um, theatre and we're going to put on a private performance so come round to um, drink a cup of chocolate and be entertained. And it just so happened that they were putting on a play, but it was by invitation only. Now, you mentioned the fact that the Theatre Royal Drury Lane had rebuilt five, five times, I think you That's said. That's right. This is um, the fifth on the site. Yeah. Splendid, though, it is now. It is. Why was that? Was it that they were getting out of date or was there a particular problem with these well, theatres? Well, fire was one of the big problems because, remember, fire. indoor theatres were candlelit and you didn't have the fire officer going round to inspect everything as you would do today before mm. any performance a fire officer from the local council would come round to do an inspection. And so theatres were regularly catching fire. So sometimes right. they were rebuilding 
because of fire. Sometimes it was just, well, let's have a rebuild, let's extend it, let's refashion it. This is getting a little bit out of date. So uh, there was a big fire, for example, at the Theatre Royal in the late 18th century. And that was when Richard Brinsley Sheridan, the playwright, was also the manager there. And there's a lovely story about him sitting in the House of Commons because he was also an MP and the messenger going to him and saying, come quickly, your theatre's on fire. So off he trots, sees his theatre in flames. He realises there's nothing can be done. There was no fire brigade in those days to speak of. And so he goes to drown his sorrows in a tavern across the road. And then somebody says, well, you aren't looking very worried. Your theatre is burning down. And he said, can't a man have a glass of wine by his own fireside? And he carried on (laughs) knocking back the red wine. So he realised that was all... He could do. And of course, sometimes rebuilding was an opportunity. So when the Covent Garden Theatre burnt down, which is on the site where the Opera House is today, it burnt down for the first time in 1808. And the manager at the time, John Philip Kemble, thought, right, I'm going to use this as an opportunity, rebuild bigger and better theatre there. But I'm going to have to put the ticket prices up in order to pay for this wonderful new place. So the theatre opened up, the ticket prices had gone up, but people had still bought the tickets. Oh, well, that's good. It's a full house. John Philip Kemble goes out onto the stage, opens his mouth to deliver a Shakespearean soliloquy when a member of the audience jumps up and starts shouting, old prices, we want the old prices. And then another person jumps up and he's brought a musical instrument with him. And soon half the audience are on their feet and they bought those old wooden rattles that people used to carry to football matches. They bought trumpets, they've bought drums that they're banging. And of course, they have to stop the show. And this goes on for 61 nights. So this is really just a protest about That's right. And in the end, John Philip Kemble has to put the prices down again. So now you know what to do next time you think the prices are too high. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So moving on to my Shaftesbury Avenue. Yes. When did that sort of develop as the heart of theatre land? Well, that was in the later Victorian period because what happened is Shaftesbury Avenue wasn't laid out until the 1880s. And it was one of those street improvements because Soho by then, which had started off as a fashionable area, had gone downhill. And the Victorian not only to improve traffic communications, but also to get rid of areas with a bad reputation. The Victorians and Edwardians would say, let's drive a wide road through it. That's why we've got the Clerkenwell Road, New Oxford Street, Kingsway, and also Shaftesbury Avenue and Victoria Street. So they drive this big road through the area and then they're building theatres because two things have happened. People are beginning to get a little bit more leisure time and also the other thing is that it's important is that in the 1840s they drop those rules that say you can only perform this type of theatre at a theatre with a royal patent. So suddenly you could do anything anywhere so theatres aren't restricted any longer. So censorship wasn't done away with it was no. just ease. oh censorship was still there so you couldn't swear and you couldn't run around in the nude but it was definitely eased up right. so and of course the big entertainment that was popular in that late 19th century period was 
music hall and variety. So you had a lot of those variety theatres, but you also had the theatres for serious drama. So if you think of the theatres along Shaftesbury Avenue, you've got the Apollo, you've got the Lyric Theatre. They're all built at the end of the 19th century. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Real beginning of the 20th century, the Shaftesbury Theatre. And uh, those theatres are theatres for all sorts of drama that they've had there over the years. But you also have the big variety theatres, which were the Hippodrome, which is now a casino, and the Alhambra, which was sadly demolished, and you've now got the big Odeon, Leicester Square, on that site. Practically everywhere in Leicester Square where you see a cinema, there used to be one of those variety theatres. And so variety really was theatre. The Coliseum, which was built in 1904, that was a variety theatre. And you had everything. So you might have uh, a can-can dancer, tightrope walkers, comedians, uh, ventriloquists. But then they would sometimes do something quite highbrow. So they'd have a ballet at the end. You even had horse racing on stage. So Horse racing on stage? How did they manage that? They staged the Derby Day. They had a revolving 
stage, which funnily enough isn't there anymore. So they had to, uh, they have to bring in revolving stages if they want to revolve. And they had live horses on stage. So the audience would be sitting there and they'd hear this galloping noise and they'd think maybe it was an effect. And amazingly, they'd bring horses on stage. That's incredible. Um, they had at the Hippodrome, they used to have boats on stage. So they used to flood the entrance. They had a water tank and they used to have boats rowing in. Uh, technically, the shows that were put on were incredibly ambitious and mm. of course you didn't have everything done at the great press special of a effects button. i mean they've just renovated the going back to the theater royal drury lane which is owned by andrew lloyd webber just spent lots of money on renovating that theater and they've taken out which is rather a shame from under the stage because they don't use it anymore the old hydraulic machinery but it was there up until recently oh. so everything was done by hydraulic power but amazing effects and going back to the Coliseum, that was owned by a man called Oswald Stoll, who owned a lot of theatres, the Hackney Empire, the Shepherd's Bush Empire. And he prided himself on the fact that his shows were good, clean shows. So if you had someone like Mari Lloyd coming along, who used to sing songs with double meanings, risque songs, he would give her a talking to beforehand and say, it's all good, clean oh, stuff, God. because we want to get a good audience in. And they would have several shows throughout the day. And if you come out of Charing Cross Station and you look up, you see that revolving ball on the top of the Coliseum. That oh, yes, yeah, yeah. And that was put there to attract audiences because what Oswald Stoll said is you'll look up and you'll see Nelson on his column and you'll yeah. know what that is. And then you'll see the spire of St Martin in the Fields Church. You'll know it's a church. But you'll see this revolving globe and you'll say, what's that? I must go and have a look. And then you'll go up there. And once you were there, there were two or three shows going on a day, continuous performances. And the foyers were always open. And this is one of the sad things about a lot of the Victorian Edwardian theatres, because when we go to the theatre, those foyers and the bars are rather cramped. And we're so busy meeting our friends, buying mm. a programme, queuing for the loo, doing all the things that you do before you go to the theatre, that by the time you get in the auditorium, the lights are going down and you can't really appreciate the wonderful decor of these places. And I'm pleased that the Theatre Royal Drury Lane has recently opened as an all-day venue. So you can walk into the foyer to look around. They right. don't mind you just looking around. But you can also go to their cafe and their restaurant and their bar all day. And I wish more theatres would do this because it really also gives you an opportunity yeah. when there aren't crowds there to look around and see this fabulous decor. So moving on from these marvellous theatres... yes. Pub theatres. How did that come about? Pub theatres. Well, they came about in 1969. So in 1969, we have an American man called Dan Crawford and he comes to Islington and he goes for a drink in the King's Head pub, which is a typical late Victorian pub. And yeah, he nice falls pub. in love with that pub and in the room at back where you often had people playing billiards or they had skittle alleys he decides to convert it into a theatre and in those days Upper Street Islington which is now full of restaurants only had the wimpy bar so he opens it as a dinner theatre where people can have dinner before the show and this is really the beginning of fringe theatre at the same time the uh, pentameters 
Theatre also opens, which is above a pub in the Three Hampstead. Exactly. Yeah. So that also one of the early ones, but the King's mm. Head, because they attract people who either go on to become famous like Victoria Wood or who are already famous like Vanessa Redgrave, for example, yeah. um, they get the big names, they transfer their shows into the West End. So this is the beginning of what's called fringe theatre. And now the better ones like to call themselves Off West End. They don't want to be called right, any longer yeah. Off West End, which we get from Off-Broadway. But before that, you have theatre clubs and they were there because of censorship. And a lot of them were in West London. So, for example, the Mercury Theatre, which is now flats in Notting Hill, which was an old church hall that was converted. And uh, that was used by the uh, Ballet Rambert when they first started. And uh, Marie Rambert's husband ran a theatre company. Now, the theatre clubs put on two sorts of plays. They put on plays that might have risked the blue pencil of the censor, right. uh, saying, no, you can't do that. Yeah. Plays that were considered slightly risque. But they also put on plays that might be appealing to a minority interest, like, for example, at the Mercury, they put on T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral, which wasn't everybody's cup of tea. So this was before subsidised theatre, which came in in the 1940s. Can I stop you there? Now, you yeah. say subsidised theatre before we move on. What do you mean by subsidised theatre? Subsidised theatre is the Arts Council comes along after the Second World War. So okay. this is the government giving... Uh, uh, they set up a body called the Arts Council, which gives grants to certain theatres, some small, some larger ones. So our big companies, the Royal Shakespeare Company up in Stratford-upon-Avon, the National Theatre, the Royal Opera House, uh, the Royal Ballet Company, they are subsidised, but also a lot of our smaller theatres. And that means they can afford to experiment. I was going to ask you, was that to it make it more affordable? It means they can afford to... Well, they can be more affordable, although they still have to rely on um, sponsorship. So if you mm. go to the National, you will often see, oh, this production is being sponsored by a big company. Yeah, I've seen that. And it means that they can also afford to be adventurous. So, for example... The National Theatre have a studio which is on the cut near, next to the Old Vic and all the time they are workshopping plays there. So they will invite writers and composers to come in and spend time on their premises writing a play and then they will invite actors to come in and workshop it and sometimes it doesn't work out and you won't see that right, play uh, sometimes mm. it might go to another theatre the national say well it's not for us but it'll end up somewhere else but sometimes it goes onto the national stage and sometimes it will become a big international hit right next question i'm going to ask you Landmark plays. Let's, landmark let's have, plays. Let's have some of the landmark plays okay, that have changed theatre right. in London. Ch things that have changed theatre in London. Well, um, let us go back to the 1950s, to the Royal Court Theatre, for example. That's at Sloan Square. Sloan Square. Now, that was built in the 1880s. Right. And, in fact, they'd always put on plays by new writers. So when George Bernard Shaw for example, was the new writer. His plays would be performed there. But in 1956, a man called George Devine comes along and he 
starts up something called the English Stage Company. And he puts on a play called Look Back in Anger by John Osborne. Now, if you watch that play today, if they revive it, you'll actually say, well, what was so special about that? But when the curtain rose on a woman in a scruffy bedsit doing the ironing, this is something that people had never seen before because what had come before it? Noel Coward, people coming in through the French windows of a grand house carrying a bouquet of flowers. Terence Rattigan, plays that were about the middle classes. So you had plays where you had people living in ordinary conditions that many people were living in. Was this type of play given a name, was it? At Kitchen Sink Drama. Oh, Kitchen Sink Drama. Kitchen Sink Drama. And you had people like Harold Pinter, Edward Bond, um, a lot of these writers, Arnold Wesker, um, and they wrote plays that are now considered classics of their day, but were given some of their first chances to perform at the Royal Court Theatre. And then over in Stratford East, we have Joan Littlewood. You'll see a statue of her outside the Theatre Royal Stratford East today. And she came down from the north of England. She had had a socialist theatre company that were taking plays to the working classes up in the north. But the trouble was, if you put on a play in the provinces, the London critics of the national papers did not want to go and review you. And she wanted to be reviewed, so she came down to London. But she wanted to find a working-class area. This was Stratford East. And Stratford East looked very different to the way that it does today. So that Theatre Royal was in the middle of a street market, which is now inside a 1970s shopping centre, but was out on the street. And the theatre had closed down. It wasn't doing very well. She reopened that theatre and she put on plays like Oh, for a, oh What a Lovely War, um, was put on that, yeah. A Taste of Honey by Sheila Delaney, which became a movie. These became movies, groundbreaking, groundbreaking plays. And uh, these plays were very well reviewed. Right. She never got her working class audience. People were coming from places like Hampstead once they read the reviews. Yeah. And many of her plays transferred into the West End, places like Wyndham's Theatre. But they were also groundbreaking plays because they were plays about working-class people. And also, she was getting actors. This was at the time when suddenly actors started using their own regional accents. So you had actors like Tom Courtney and Albert Finney and uh, actors who were from the north of England using their regional accents. And uh, you have Barbara Windsor with a Cockney accent over at the uh, Theatre Royal Stratford East. Now, we mentioned censorship twice. Yes. Now, as a young man, I can remember some sort of risque plays um, being performed and hearing the sort of news about these plays. Yeah. Um, when did censorship end and what were the plays? Well, that... 1968, and you're probably thinking of Oak Calcutta, which was put on at the round, the round house, and I won't tell you on air where they got the name Oak Calcutta from, okay, but it was don't. very rude. Um, and then um, also, of course, there was hair came over from America with that nude scene that was very, very famous. And that was the beginning of nudity where you could move because nudity was being censored. You have the Lord Chamberlain's office who are censoring things. 
But Vivian Van Dam, who took over the windmill theatre, which is still standing yes. today, just off Piccadilly, and he thought, well, why is nudity not allowed when you can see naked statues on the streets of London. And so the Lord Chamberlain's department said, well, you can put on a play where people are in the nude as long as they stay stock still. And uh, they had on display, they have changing displays in the British Library, but uh, a few years ago they had on display a script of a sketch that was being performed at the Windmill Theatre and it was called The Lady and the Burglar and it was a woman who had just come out of the bath with a towel around her and she sees a burglar and in her shock she drops the towel and there was a blue pencil through that no, you can't drop the towel because that wouldn't be allowed. Of course, swearing wasn't allowed but also plays that were censored, a place that today are great classics and you would think, God, why on earth was that censored? For example, A View from the Bridge by Arthur Miller and the main character in that is maybe a little bit too interested in his niece, but nothing sexual happens. It's just that suggestion in the play, but that play was banned. Mm. So plays, it was put on in um, club conditions at a place called the Watergate Club, which was actually the theatre that used to be the comedy theatre and is now the Harold Pinter Theatre because many of his plays right, just off the were performed market. there. Yeah. Yeah. So no censorship today, of course. Practically yeah. anything goes. Well, let's let's move up to date. Um, got a couple of last questions for you. Um how does theatre evolve? You know, I mean, to, presumably the people that are going to the theatre today are not interested in what was shown 30, 40 years ago. Well, they are because there are revivals all the time. I right. mean, there's hardly any time when you don't get revivals of plays by Oscar Wilde, for example, who was writing in the 1890s and he shows the importance of being earnest and Lady, Lady Windermere's fan, fan yeah. get revived again okay. and again. There was an interest again in a few years ago, revival of interest in the place of Terence Rattigan, which really went out of favour when the new kitchen sink dramas came in and the writers of those who were known as the angry young men. But those plays get revived and there are many, many revivals. Hampstead Theatre um, has recently been doing a season of plays that were their greatest hits 20, 30 years ago. And so there is an interest. But if I was to talk about the new developments in theatre today, immersive is a key word for everything and experience. So, for example, one of the hottest tickets in town and one of the most expensive tickets in town, as we are recording this, is on at the Playhouse and it is a revival of Cabaret. Now, Cabaret, oh. of course, uh, that was performed Judy Dench. Yeah. Uh, she played the part of Sally Bowles in the first production of Cabaret in England in the 1960s. Um, but that uh, particular production is being done as an immersive experience. So instead of going through the front door, you go through a side door of the theatre and it's all decked out like a nightclub. So you feel as though you're in the Kit Kat Club and you can buy a ticket that includes a meal there. Now, that's being performed in a theatre. There are other 
uh, performances that are site-specific. And that's another key word that's come in uh, a few years ago, where you get companies like the Punch Drunk Theatre Company is the most famous one. And they'll take over an empty factory or warehouse, for example, and they will create a world whereby different spaces within that empty factory are transformed and the audience doesn't sit. You follow the actors around, you follow the action around. So you are immersed in the action. So those have been new types of theatre. They won't replace the traditional theatre, though, where people sit in their seat and look at a proscenium stage and watch a theatre. But a lot of our theatres, our more modern theatres, they can be transformed. So sometimes you go to the Young Vic, for example, and you're sitting in the round and the actors are performing in the centre. Sometimes you will be sitting in a more traditional setup. So I think that this helps to attract a new audience and a younger audience by doing something that's a little bit more off the wall, where people feel that they're more involved with the action that is going on. But do you know, every time people have said, oh, well, this is it, theatre is dead, either because cinemas come in, because televisions coming in because of the pandemic when the theatres had to close Mm. down. Back in Shakespeare's day, it was the plague. They were always having to close down. But theatre hasn't died because now people are coming back to theatre and they're more hungry than ever for live entertainment. Diane, wonderful as ever. Thank you very much. Thank you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.